Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Stand Strong in the Word podcast. So glad to be with you once again as we open God's Word and we study the life of Jesus Christ in chronological order. So today is podcast 73, and we're going to be talking about prayer, about the persistence of prayer. Now, last week in podcast 72, we talked about what a true disciple looks like. So if you missed that, go to standstrongministries.org, click on podcast. My notes are there. And again, it's a great tool to help you study God's word and just appreciate you listening. Appreciate as as always, you guys, I was just praying for my listeners all over the world, thanking God for the commitment that we have to study his word together. So I just encourage you continue to stand strong, continue to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Know that we're praying for our listeners that we collectively will continue to be used by the Lord as we hunger and thirst for his truth in our lives. Please share it with your friends. Let them know what this ministry has done in your life and let people know how they can listen in as well so we can continue to grow this community of believers who really want to know contextually the the proper understanding of scripture as we take approach verse by verse studying through the gospels in chronological order. So today here on podcast 73, as we look now at Luke chapter 11, we're going to be looking at two uh, key events that take place in this chapter. So we'll be looking at Luke chapter 11 verses 1 through 13 and then verses 37 through 54. So the first part here in verses 1 through 13, we're going to talk about prayer, the persistency that God says that we need to be having when it comes to prayer. And then secondly, Jesus is invited over to a Pharisee's house, and he rebukes these religious leaders of their hypocrisy. And we'll look at six unique woes that even though Jesus was rebuking them in his day, how you and I can look at the woes in our own life and make sure that we're not living hypocritical lives ourselves. So if you remember to bring us up to speed, in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24, Jesus commissions the 72 disciples. And then afterwards, a lawyer approaches him and asks him how he can inherit eternal life. And then from there, Jesus goes to Bethany, where he dines with Mary and Martha. And that's where we pick things up now here in Luke chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13 and then provide some commentary. It says here, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he answered from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up, and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, 
it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now, once again, what's so interesting throughout the Gospels is we see these little nuggets of them providing commentary or or instances where Jesus is off praying. And so it says here that he's praying in a certain place. And when he finishes his time, the disciples approach and says, Lord, can you teach us to pray? And notice, as John taught his disciples. So again, it was Jesus's custom to go away often and to pray. Sometimes all night, we're told, like in Mark chapter 1. And he was praying before he, remember, he picked his disciples. And so his disciples here... They're asking if he could teach them like John the Baptist did to pray. Now, what's interesting, though, it was custom for rabbis to compose prayers for their disciples. So literally, we can translate this in the Greek as, Lord, teach us, meaning, can you give us a model? Can you give us some handwritten or composed prayers that we can use? Now, this is also some insight because notice as John taught his disciples, I guarantee with the overlap between John the Baptist with his disciples, we know that there were times in the ministry, particularly in the Galilean ministry, where we saw the disciples interacting with one another. Now, even though as John the Baptist was decreasing before he was even arrested and beheaded, there was some interaction. So the disciples are probably very intrigued because they knew the role that John the Baptist played leading as the herald that is leading to the Messiah. And so they were very fond of John the Baptist. And we know that Jesus spoke very highly of him. So they saw a model of what John the Baptist was doing to the disciples. And they saw the value and the importance and the time commitment that Jesus had in prayer. And even as a Jew, prayer was very important. So they're asking their rabbi, they're asking their teacher, they refer to him as Lord, as their master, teach us, give us some composed prayers. Now, it's important to note that this is a separate incident. This occurrence here is not the one that's mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. This prayer here in verses 2 through 4, I believe, is an abbreviated version from what Jesus taught back in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Now, according to the Lord's Prayer, or if you want to refer to it as the Disciples' Prayer, some people refer to it as the Sinner's Prayer of Matthew 6, 9 through 13, and Luke here, verses 2 and 4. It's not a mat, it's not a formulaic thing. Okay, it's not like saying if you just pray this thing, you'll get what you want. It's a it's a manner in which to pray. One commentary writes this this Lord's Prayer is not so much a formula to be repeated as it is a revelation of the attitude with which we approach God as Father. An attitude of awe, submission, dependence, and complete confidence in his father's love, end quote. I love that. So that's well said that when you and I start breaking down right now, this prayer that Jesus gives him as a model. Now, notice he doesn't write it down, but in that, in that oratorical approach, as a rabbi, he's teaching them in an easy way that they can memorize and then they can relay it back. And so when he says, when you pray, you are to say, notice the first phrase, Father, hallowed be your name. So Jesus teaches his disciples, the first step to prayer is to bring adoration. Prayer is about communion with your heavenly father. That's what Jesus is stressing here. He's, a, he's saying you need to identify the relationship that you have with him. Now, of course, we have it through Christ now. 
because of his death and resurrection. If you look back at Psalm 103, it says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So the term hallowed has a sense of that fear, that reverence. It literally means, may your name be honored as holy. So you and I have a reverence for God's holiness. We acknowledge him as a holy God, but the word hallowed also carries a sense of urgency for God to reveal his holiness. So we're not just praying to a God who is holy, but we pray to a God who can make us holy. So prayer is the essence of worship. The first petition is about acknowledging that God is holy, that he's worthy of worship, and that we honor, we praise him. One commentary says the first two sentences, hallowed be thy name and thy kingdom come, echo the language of the Jewish prayer, the Kaddish. It begins like this, magnified and and hallowed be his great name in the world, and may he establish his kingdom in your lifetime and in your days quickly and soon. The commentary continues to write, the third, your will be done, is similar to a prayer of the Rabbi Eleazar, which says, do thy will in heaven above and give peace to those who fear thee below. That's recorded in in the Babylonian Talmud. So what's interesting, my friends, is that when Jesus gives them a model prayer, he's also recording some traditional Jewish prayers that the people have. So I find that fascinating because he didn't just make this up on the spot. He's gathering prayers in the Old Testament and also the Jewish people had also recorded in their traditions and he's kind of showing them an outline where they got it right. So when you look at the second phrase, your kingdom come, the second step down to prayer is submission. The first one was adoration. This one is about submission. God's kingdom will come into being on earth one day. And so you and I are to pray to anticipate that. Notice the next one here, the third step is give us each day our daily bread. The word daily just means the, the coming, the continual abundance of it. So this is about making petitions. So you have adoration, you have submission. Now you have petitions. See, the Lord desires that you and I seek him, my friends, with all of our heart and that we trust him, that he knows what's best for us, that he will care for us, that he will provide for us. The Lord miraculously, when you look back in Deuteronomy chapter eight, remember how he provided for the Hebrews for 40 years in the wilderness? The same God that delivered the Hebrews is the same God that you and I worship today. If he provided for them, he'll provide for us. But remember, adoration first, then think about his coming kingdom And then we start focusing on the things that are in the world, which leads to Jesus's fourth step in prayer, offering confession. He says, forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. That just literally means fail when tested. So we need to admit our sin and our wrongdoing against God. And we need to seek for forgiveness. And as we do that, we need to continue to pray within our spiritual needs that we have the ability to go out there and forgive other people as well. That's what the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4.32. So part of our prayer life, my friends, is seeking God for forgiveness and being willing to forgive those people who have wronged us. Now, what's interesting, the sixth Jewish benediction, Amida is referred to as, as a prayer for forgiveness. So again, Jesus is pulling another ancient Jewish benediction and he's putting it into this disciple's prayer, this modeled prayer. And another thing that's so interesting is that phrase, lead us into temptation. Matter of fact, that's something that the Jews regularly prayed for at the end of each day. So one can say that after the disciples get this model of prayer from Jesus, that they're very familiar with the components or the steps to what he expressed to them. But what's so interesting, though, is what Jesus does now is he tells them the story 
of a neighbor who gets a guest who comes off the road. He's on this journey, he comes off the road, and he comes at midnight. So that's an unusual time to have a guest. But not only that, but not to have anything for your guest was very offensive. So the neighbor starts banging on the door of his neighbor asking for three loaves of bread. Now, Jesus sets up the story the way that he does because he wants to show the shamelessness. He wants to show the persistency that we need to have in prayer as he's connecting this model to prayer for his disciples to understand. And so here in verse seven, it says, and he will answer from within, do not bother me. Or it just literally means cause hardship. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Now, if you know in tradition in the first century homes, they were single room dwellings where the sleeping quarters consisted of the entire family. So if one member woke up, lit a candle and opened the door, the entire family would be awakened. So what Jesus is pointing out here is the neighbor doesn't want to be bothered. He doesn't want to be disturbed. Now let's pause before we look at verse eight. Think about how many times you would like to say something, you would like to do something or ask someone something, but you don't want to disturb them. You don't want to bother them. Now, this neighbor doesn't care about any of that. Remember, this is this is in conjunction to prayer. So notice in verse 8, it says, I tell you though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. But notice, yet because of his impudence, literally in the Greek, his lack of sensitivity, his shamelessness, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So the man will get out of his bed to give his neighbor what he needs, not because of his love for his neighbor, but because of the neighbor's persistence, because of the neighbor's boldness, shamelessness. He wouldn't leave until he received the three loaves of bread. That's the point that Jesus is making, that if a friend will do that, even out of frustration for his friend who's sinful, but he's willing to give him something good, how much more will God give you and me the things that we ask him boldly as we follow that model prayer with shamelessness. If you go back to Luke chapter 18, verses one through eight, and you see this parable of the persistent widow, that's precisely what we ought to be doing in our prayer lives. But Jesus is not through yet. In verse nine, he says, I tell you, he says, ask. It just literally means plead, demand with urgency. So remember, you go back to hallowed be thy name. There's a sense of urgency with that word of God's holiness and praying for his kingdom to come. And so as we anticipate that his kingdom will come today, our requests become all the more urgent. That's what he's saying. And But he doesn't just say ask. He says, it will be given to you. You are to seek. Literally just means that you will search until it is found. So we are to pray until we have an answer to that prayer. And, he, and you will find, he says. And then finally, he says, ask, seek, and what? Knock, signaling your presence. That's what that means. And he says, and it will be opened. So once again, Jesus stresses that prayer is about asking, seeking, and knocking. We see that back in Matthew 7, 7 through 8. Now, what's interesting, though, is when you look at asking, seeking, and knocking, the tenses of the verbs here in Greek are keep on keeping on asking, seeking, and knocking. So literally, when it comes to prayer, keep on keeping on. You keep on praying and you do it persistently with shamelessness until you not get your way, but until God responds as you anticipate his holiness to be revealed. That's the key. My friends, that's the key. So don't just come to God in an emergency. We need to have an open dialogue with him every moment of every day. 
Now notice it says here in verse 10, for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Warren Wiersbe says, persistency in prayer is not an attempt to change God's mind, thy will be done, but to get ourselves to the place where he can trust us with the answer. That's well said. That's the difference, my friends, between just kind of flippant prayers, follow that model that Jesus lays out here, but do it with persistency. But Jesus isn't done yet. He now gives an example of a father. And he says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, meaning that just means active rebellion, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So Jesus not only sets forth a model prayer for his disciples to pray, but he also teaches them to come before the throne with a shameless faith without hesitation. Don't resist him. Don't hesitate, but come to him. And as he teaches about prayer that way, he also underscores who God is. He reminds his disciples, as you and I, my friends, are reminded today that God is good. He's a good father who hears the prayers of his children. And he responds by giving them, each one of us, good gifts. Now, the fish, the serpent, the egg, the scorpion may be confused thinking, why does he use that kind of terminology to draw this out? Or in that time, people would often be confused with a certain fish to be a snake or a curled up scorpion to be an egg. So what he's saying is good parents don't fool their children. And if good parents who still have an act of rebellion because of their sinful nature know how to love sacrificially our children and not to deceive them, not to wrong them that way, how much more so will God give good gifts to his children who asks? One commentary writes, God is a loving father who wishes to demonstrate that love to his children who in recognition of his love are free to come to him with any request, confident that he will not be offended and confident that he will not shame them. The nuance of persistence is true if applied to our faith, for we are to persist in our faith that God in his perfect timing will fulfill his word. For example, the gift of the Holy Spirit promised in Joel chapter two took 800 years to materialize in Acts two, verse 16. And the final thing to mention here is this phrase that Jesus gives at the very end when he's talking about prayer, that he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. I find this fascinating because remember, Jesus gives you the modeled prayer with all the different steps. Then he talks about persistency and gives you the illustration of a neighbor. And then on top of that, he's talking about asking, seeking, and knocking. And then on top of that, he reminds us who the Father is, that he's a good God, that he listens to our prayers, and he'll give us the Holy Spirit. Because you and I know that ultimately, my friends, you can have a formula of prayer. You can read a book about prayer. You could be around people who pray, but without the direction and the filling of the Holy Spirit, we can't pray at all. And so make sure that when you pray, that you're praying for the filling of the Holy Spirit. That finishes off, if you will, this model of prayer. Now, the second event, we jump down to verses 37 through 54, where Jesus rebukes the religious leaders of hypocrisy. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to be reading the passage, and then I'll be commenting uh, verse by verse. So here in verse 37 says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and he reclined at table. So here we see a Pharisee's coming out to not only hear Jesus teach, but he's making a statement. 
And the statement is this, with his presence being there, he's trying to scare off the crowd. Remember, they're coming to Jesus, the disciples and the people, they're seeing miracles, they're hearing Jesus teach, and he's telling them how to communicate to God. But the Pharisees, remember, through the Sanhedrin, they're the ones that dictate how people approach to God, how they offer their sacrifices, how they come to the temple, etc. So this Pharisee, he decides to say, I'm going to invite Jesus to dine with me an attempt to almost intimidate Jesus. And so what's so amazing though, is despite these attacks and these slurs by the religious leaders, Jesus continues to accept these invitations. He's not afraid to do them. And so here in verse 38, the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. So this washing is a ceremonial evolution. And if you remember, the Pharisees were strict adherents to the law of Moses. And so they enforced severe regulations on the Jews. And so washing hands of course, had nothing to do with hygiene. Uh, it had to do with p- the purification as a symbol. What's interesting, though, is that we never find the washing of hands as required by the law of Moses. It was just a tradition of the Pharisees. You see that in Matthew 15, verse 2. Now, in the Old Testament, there are a few occasions of ceremonial washing in like Genesis 18, 4 and Judges 19, 21, but the law never required it. And so the Pharisees put, again, these mandates They put these restrictions on the people, like the ceremonial washing. And Jesus, by not conducting this manner, not doing the ceremonial washing, that was a direct sign to the Pharisees that Jesus, as a rabbi, he opposed their traditions. And he didn't want to be anything like them. And so then, in verse 39, Jesus says to him, Now you Pharisees, you cleanse, it just means you purify the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Now, Luke doesn't mention what the Pharisees said or if it was just only implied here. But regardless of what takes place or Jesus, what we have here recorded, he speaks up and he rebukes the Pharisees' hypocrisy. And he does it by contrasting the external purification from internal purification, which is spiritual transformation. And you can imagine here that Jesus is using several items on the table to illustrate his point when he's rebuking the Pharisees of their greed and their lack of care for people. Now, if you remember, if you go back to Mark 7, verses 1 through 5, religious leaders would often wash themselves thoroughly to remove any defilement if they're in contact with a Gentile or a lowly being when they're out there in the public square. And Jesus is telling them that your purification does not purify your soul. Verse 42 says, but woe, these woes now that we get into, there's six of them, they mean disaster, they mean calamity. He says, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So what Jesus is saying here is he's taking the hypocrisy of the Pharisee and he's confronting them now with six woes. Now, woes acted as laments, but they were also a cry, a cry that the prophet would give upon the people of impending judgment to come. And so the first three woes that we're going to see here address the failed practice of the Pharisees. And the final three woes, Jesus addresses the lawyers who come into the conversation because they fail to apply the law. So now the first woe here, Jesus rebukes him for caring more about the tiny details of their ceremonies than the broader importance of loving the law and loving justice and loving others when you look at Micah 6 verses 6 through 8. But the Jews, they of course, they saw it differently. Matter of fact, in the Sanhedrin chapter 11, section 13, it says the Mishnah lays it down 
that it is more important to observe the scribal interpretations than the law itself. There you have it. So, you know, a lot of times we're studying the Bible and we're seeing the traditions of the Pharisees. And you see here at the, at the dining table that Jesus actually rebukes one of the Pharisees for their traditions. Well, guess what? We have outside sources here in the Sanhedrin that they even admit, they're saying that the Mishnah, the commentary to the Old Testament says that you are to observe to the scribal interpretations that they're in essence more important than the law of Moses itself. So now here in verse 43, he says, woe to you Pharisees for you love. This means you love the high regard. You love the value of having the best seat in the synagogues and the greetings, the recognition that you get in the marketplaces. So the second will hear Jesus rebukes him for caring more about their status than the condition of the people. Now, as I'm giving you these woes, I want you to not only apply it to your own life, but also think of the leadership, the spiritual leadership that is, my friends, that you are in currently. So notice they cared more about their status than the condition of the people. Their reputation mattered more than the character of their heart. They, they cared more about people serving them than them serving the people. They cared more about being honored than honoring the Lord. And then here in verse 44, it says, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Now, in that culture at that time, any contact with a dead body, it would defile a Jew. If you go back to Numbers chapter 19, verse 16. So therefore, what the Jews would do is they would whitewash a tomb. That just means that they would paint it and they would do this in order to avoid Jews crossing over a tomb that would defile them, especially Jews are coming from Jerusalem to Passover. So what Jesus is saying to them is that you guys do a great job painting yourself, presenting yourself as righteous, as good, when in fact you're not. You're concealing your sin by your external legalism. This woe to the Pharisees is about hiding their spiritual deadness. And I think, my friends, oftentimes we look at our own lives, especially people, as I was saying to you uh, earlier, by applying it to a lot of the evangelical leaders today is how many of them are hiding behind the pulpits or hiding behind their ministries. They're concealing their sin with whatever product or whatever goodness or whatever mission or vision or whatever church plans they're doing and we can't be fooled or deceived jesus rebukes this pharisee the average jew would look at a pharisee and say that is the righteous standard of how we are right with god and jesus is rebuking them now one of the lawyers in verse 45 responds to jesus he answers him says teacher and saying these things you insult that this means you mistreat us with arrogance also so the lawyer thought it was his duty as an expert in the law to challenge Jesus' open rebuke to them. And Jesus says to him in verse 46, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So what Jesus is saying is the way that the lawyers interpret the law, the Mosaic law that is, place a great burden on the people. And so to the leaders, if the people couldn't meet these requirements, they would be condemned. So this fourth woe exposes the lawyers as the real burden, not the Mosaic law, 
but they themselves. And then in verse 47, he says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, so you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So the fifth woe from Jesus calls out the religious leaders' persecution. You see, they appeared to have venerated the prophets when in fact they silenced the prophets by putting them to death. They're hypocrites. They're murderers. They would rather seek the approval of other human beings, their fathers, not of God. So their motives were impure. This phrase from the murder of Abel to the murder of Zechariah shows the historic scope of resistance. So if you go back from the very murder of Abel to when you look at the Hebrew Old Testament canon, Zechariah, which is the last book, he's saying from the beginning to the end, they are murderers. So he says in verse 52, woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You, you did not enter yourselves. You hindered those who were entering. So the final woe here confronts the leader's betrayal to God by not teaching the people the truth of his word. Here, the religious leaders were enforcing all of these extra laws, all of these different mandates. That's what they cared about. Yet in the process, what they were doing was they were drawing people further away from God, burdening the people more to the point where they didn't know God, they didn't know his word. And then here in verse 53 as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So remember, from the very beginning, the disciples come to Jesus. Lord, teach us to pray. We want to know God more. And he tells them how to pray with persistency. And then a Pharisee who thinks, oh, I know how to pray to God. I'm the one that helps people draw near to God. I know the law. I have it memorized. I hang out with these lawyers. And they invite Jesus in to intimidate him. And they're offended because he doesn't do the ceremonial washing. But we find out that that has nothing to do with the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to partake in humanistic traditions. And they're offended and they attack him. And Jesus comes and gives them six woes. And yet after this open rebuke, what do they do? They attack him. They don't care. They ignore the woes of Jesus and they want to destroy him. So my friends, as we conclude this podcast today, examine your prayer life. Look at the kind of persistency that you have. We always need to pray harder, more frequently, and with more persistency. And as you do that, make sure that you are not like these Pharisees, that if, if any one of these woes really hit you hard, that you go before God and you ask for his forgiveness. Thanks for listening, you guys. I love you. And until next time, keep standing strong. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the word of God.